And so, Father, right now, because you are here alive and among us, we come to you by faith and ask that you would continue to open our hearts and our minds to you. We pray, God, that you would rain down righteousness, that you would let the clouds shower down. You would let the earth open wide. You would open wide our hearts and our minds and our souls. And you would let salvation spring up and righteousness grow with it. We worship you and praise you for all you have done for us in Jesus. Give us the grace to hear his words now. Amen. Man, what do I say after this? I, I guess if this worship, if worship like this doesn't light a fire in you, then your wood is just still too wet. I mean, what a, what a moment to come into the presence of the living God. As we study the Word of God's soul, let's transition, grab your Bible, turn on your Bible, grab a Bible if you don't have one in front of you, and turn with me to the second book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark and Mark chapter 8. The Bible is God's basic instruction before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E, basic instruction before leaving earth. And just maybe, nowhere is the cost and the countercultural nature of this instruction more vividly illustrated than in our passage today. Uh, So without anything further, we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Follow with me as we read. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Now, that's the Greek anointed one, uh, the Messiah. Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. Now, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man... Now, Jesus didn't use the term Messiah or the Christ to refer to himself very often because the Jewish understanding was it had all sorts of political, even military, overtones. So when Jesus referred to himself, as we see here, actually twice in this passage, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Over 80 times in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Also a term for deity. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. 
Now, no, be rejected not by the criminals, but by the religious leaders of the land, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Don't we all want to correct God at times? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then, recognizing that he's at a critical juncture, Jesus doesn't just speak to the disciples. He calls the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life, the life of his soul, his eternal life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, for the gospel, will save it. And now he asks two questions. Question number one, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Question number two, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now today, what I want to do as we come to this amazing passage is I want to talk about suffering. Now I know this is a passage about discipleship. We won't talk about that. But it's also a passage of, on suffering, and the two are wedded together because the call to discipleship is a call to suffering. And I want to emphasize suffering because I'm convinced one of the main reasons we struggle with discipleship today is because we struggle with suffering, with pain. You see, one of the, the major causes of grief that, that begins to paralyze us now, we all experience grief, but for some, grief can be paralyzing. One of the main causes of spiritual confusion and, and, and darkness when we seem to have lost our way with God, one, one of the main uh, reasons for getting angry at God and distancing our, ourselves from God, uh, God, why in the world did you do this to me, is because we, too many of us in the body of Christ, have false expectations relative to suffering. And the truth is, we're soft on it. And as I have said repeatedly, we confuse the American dream or aspects of the American dream, the, the current American dream of, of comfort and ease with the kingdom dream, which is clearly articulated here, by the way, of discipleship, sacrifice, and suffering. And we saw this recently in our family. Our daughter Shannon, her husband Luke, and our only grandchild are serving as missionaries uh, halfway around the world in Asia, in a totally closed, 100% Muslim country, difficult, difficult situation. At Christmas, Shannon told us she was pregnant. We were all excited about that. And she was fairly early on, uh, but a couple weeks went by, and, and the baby wasn't keeping up. The baby wasn't growing as it should. Then the baby wasn't viable. Then the baby died. And Shannon had a miscarriage. And it was her third. 
But what made this situation particularly difficult is uh, the house they are renting, like houses in this city, in this part of the world, isn't very well insulated. And their winters are sort of like Chicago. And what happens in the winter is the pipes freeze regularly. So they had to move out. And Shannon had to miscarry while she was staying at somebody else's place. And I got to tell you, that was hard for Rhonda and me. We hated that for her. And yet, as we talked this through with her, we were amazed at, at her attitude. How positive, how, how strong, how uncomplaining she was. But she, because, because, because she gets, there's a cost to following Jesus Christ. And the cross comes before the crown. And believing that God has called them to reach people that desperately need Jesus Christ, there is no place they would rather be. She gets suffering for Jesus. And so this morning, I want to wrestle with how do we get to that point? I mean, that was really hard for me. How, how do we become like that? Now, not just when you're overseas, but when you're uh, struggling, uh, slugging it out in a godless environment, let's say at work or at school. Or maybe it's a situation in our larger culture. Or, or maybe it's a, a real difficult period in your marriage or, 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 or your family. Or, or, or maybe it's because you're involved in alleviating human suffering, human misery here in DuPage County or someplace else in the world. And you're just constantly facing difficulty, adversity, pain. Now i got to tell you this morning, I love what Jesus says here. This is a huge passage, a famous passage, a a major, major passage. And what Jesus has to say about suffering really comes in two pieces, uh, two parts. First, what Jesus says about his suffering, and then what he calls us to. But I want to begin with you by looking at how our Lord sets the stage. So let's go back to the beginning. And I want you to notice in verses 27, 28, and 29, Jesus asks his disciples two questions. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And what I want you to note is that Jesus is initiating this conversation. Jesus is in control. Jesus is driving his train to Jerusalem, to his death. And he raises these questions because he has reached a strategic point, a turning point in his timetable, in his ministry. And with Peter's admission, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, you are the Messiah, in verse 29, which Peter only understood partially, not fully, Just as in the preceding five verses, the man who was blind was only partially healed at first, 
Here Jesus only understands what he's saying, or Peter only understands what he's saying partially, but with that declaration, the focus of Jesus' entire ministry will now shift. And Jesus will move from who he is to teaching about what he must do. He will move from miracles and teaching, demonstrating he is the Messiah, to clarifying his mission, the nature of what it means for him to be Messiah. All the more necessary because all of Israel, including all 12 of the disciples, were anticipating a political ruler, a conquering king, who would come and vanquish the Romans and return and restore Israel to the Jews. Israel had, you must understand, Israel had no categories for a suffering Messiah. And you say, well, what about Isaiah 53? Well, they believe Isaiah 53 referred to the nation. So what Jesus is saying here is inconceivable. A Messiah would suffer, be rejected, killed, the Messiah? So what we have is a hinge passage where we move from the first half of the Gospel of Mark, or you could say, broadly speaking, the first half of Jesus' ministry uh, to the second half of the Gospel, the second half of Jesus' ministry. And Peter's statement, Thou art the Christ, you are the Christ, is really the climax of the first part. And with Jesus beginning in verse 31, talking about predicting its prophecy his coming death, we begin the second part of the gospel, Jesus' ministry. But the point I want you to see is Jesus is driving the bus. Jesus is driving the train. Jesus is in control. Jesus is initiating all of this. And now, as we'll see, Jesus is predicting his death. So let's move from setting the stage now to what Jesus says or what Jesus reveals about Jesus' suffering in verse 31. And there's a lot I could say here, but I want to focus on just one word in verse 31, and it's the word must. Jesus says, I must suffer. Now, not because the Romans and the Jews will outmuscle him, or not because of any human activity or human situation, but because of God. So this must, if you will, indicates a divine necessity. It's, it's God's will. So 700 years earlier, Isaiah prophesying, anticipating this day that would come seven centuries later, said it was the Lord's will to crush him. And as I, I, I said a moment ago, and, and here it's not by the criminals uh, of the culture, it's by the leading citizens, uh, the elders, the priests, the religious leaders. Uh, uh, but we've got to ask ourselves a question here at this point. Why? Why was it God's will? Why must Jesus suffer? And the answer is because of who God is, because of the character of God. Uh, so, uh, on the one hand, because God is perfectly loving, 
His disposition, his, his desire is to rescue us from our rebellion, our, our sin, from the consequences of our rebellion and sin, hell. But because God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, he must punish sin. Now I want you to see how Paul will explain this. Look at this verse, Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. Here Paul is giving us uh, some theology behind this must. And he says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate his justice. God presented him, that is Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. Now we know what the word atone means. We use the word atone. To atone means to turn aside wrath. Uh, to satisfy uh, justice, uh, to make one broadly. So Paul is saying here, Jesus must die in our place for our sin to satisfy God's absolute holy hatred of sin, to satisfy the wrath of God. And the cross then, and this is the theology behind this, is the only way a loving God could satisfy the righteousness of God. In the economy of God, the cross always comes before the crown. And there is no such thing as a crossless Christianity. No forgiveness apart from atonement. And no atonement apart from suffering. The suffering, the rejection, and the death of Christ. Our Messiah is a suffering Messiah. And therefore suffering is at the center of God's plan for his people. And we suffer for Jesus because Jesus so willingly and so deeply suffered for us. And the, the, the reason we have trouble with this radical call to discipleship here is often because we fail to appreciate the radical work of Christ on our behalf. And our superficial commitment is birthed in a superficial appreciation of what Jesus Christ has done for me today in light of the cosmos, in light of eternity. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus, knowing that this wrong and superficial view of the Messiah can lead to a wrong and super view, superficial view rather of what it means to be a, a, a disciple, immediately moves from his suffering in verse 31 to the centrality of suffering in the life of a believer. In verses 34 through verse 38. And as we come to this section, we discover what people who have been transformed by the cross look like. We discover what people who live in light of the wonder of their forgiveness in Jesus Christ look like. And here we also discover what it is that enables God's people to willingly suffer for him. I mean, how could it be that if my Savior suffered for me, I would be unwilling to be inconvenienced for Jesus, let alone suffer for him. 
How is that? So what I want to do is I want to surface five things that Jesus says, beginning in verse 34, uh, that will help us uh, to navigate suffering, will help us to transcend it. And the first is, Jesus says, you deny yourself. You deny yourself. Verse 34, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. Now, denying yourself here doesn't mean you deny your gifts, your abilities, your competencies. It doesn't mean you never have an opinion about anything. It it, it doesn't mean you need to walk every place you go and you can't have a car. Well, you need to deny yourself and walk 30 miles to the city today. Now, that's not what Jesus is getting at. When Jesus says deny yourself, he is saying you dethrone yourself. You renounce yourself as the Lord of your life. Because deny here means to disown. It means to separate from. As when Peter denied Christ, he disowned Christ and he separated himself. He withdrew from Christ. And Jesus is saying, withdraw from yourself as Lord. This is a lordship issue. Jesus is saying his disciples, the one who navigate turbulence, uh, the turbulent waters of living in a sinful fallen world, the turbulent waters of adversity do so because they know they are under new management. They know they have a new boss and the boss is Jesus. Now, the opposite of self-denial here is self-indulgence. It's self-gratification. And too many of us today in the church are bible light, Holy Spirit anemic, and kingdom and purpose starved. Because we have settled for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity, as Jesus articulates it here, is abandon yourself. Dethrone yourself. Because you love Jesus more. Now, now frankly, this is a problem for me. It's a problem for all of us. Uh, But men, you males, I think we need to especially tune in here and listen to Jesus because we will never be the men God wants us to be. Honoring him in both good times and bad times, stress times, until we come to the end of ourselves. And it's really hard for a number of us men to come to the end of ourselves. Until we begin to abandon our own uh, uh, agenda, our own false righteousness, and see ourselves as a blank check. This has been doing this all day today. Sorry about that. And and, and we see ourselves as a blank check made out to Jesus. Now, what does that mean, men? That means, obviously, this is 
true for us men and women as well. That means we get up in, in the morning and we say, Jesus, here I am. And I just want to review. Today, I am a blank check made out to you, and you fill it in as you see fit. Deny yourself means you have a blank check for Jesus mentality. Second, you embrace pain. You you embrace rejection for Christ. Jesus gets at this by saying, take up your cross. Luke adds that Jesus says, take up your cross daily. So in other words, Jesus is using a metaphor uh, for commitment regardless of the cost, regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of the price, regardless of the pain. Jesus' listeners would have grasped that this is a revolting picture. When Jesus said this, they would have grabbed their heads and shook their heads and said, what in the world is he saying? Because they understood what Jesus is saying. They would have gotten it. Because in the first century, uh, the, the ruling Roman Empire regularly crucified in front of all of Israel the worst of culture, the criminals the most revolting, debased of people who had broken the law, um, refused to worship, to bow to Rome. And they grew up seeing crucifixions and they knew that Jesus was painting a picture here of someone who was condemned by the Roman Empire carrying his own cross or part of his own cross to the place of a painful, shameful execution after being severely beaten with the most severe, the most awful of the three levels of Roman beatings. And this is a horrible, horrible metaphor, a horrible picture. And I say this because I want you to understand, cross-bearing, therefore, isn't having a domineering mother-in-law, okay? Or bad eyes, as in my case. It's a willingness to identify with Jesus. It's a willingness to die to the glory and attraction of this world. It's a willingness to be understood, to be rejected, to be mistreated, to be maligned, to have people talk about you behind your back, to be hated because you stand with Jesus, you identify with Jesus, and you stand strong. Take up your cross. Go to the place of death for me. Now don't misunderstand having said this. This is not a call to a life of misery. Adversity is inevitable, but misery is a choice. Have you heard me say that? I know too many miserable Christians... There is no virtue in being miserable, friends. How you doing today? Oh man, I'm just miserable. Well, why are you miserable? Well, I'm taking up my cross. Well, how are you taking up your cross? Well, my mother-in-law just moved in. (laughs) No virtue in being miserable. Uh, Jesus is saying something uh, different here. 
He's saying there's an ultimate joy, if you will, an ultimate beauty in standing with Christ and doing hard things for Christ, taking risks for Christ, going without being tired because you're uh, up to your eyeballs and in, in, in work and then service and ministry for Christ and you're willing to be misunderstood, you're willing to be persecuted and you're willing to be rejected just as Jesus was. And it's so interesting in this passage that Jesus starts with his suffering before he moves to ours. But the one follows the other. Now parents, let me just say to you, by the way, isn't this one of the main things we want to help our kids understand? Now it's not that they all need to go overseas. The address isn't the point. But it's they need to understand that the number one fact in the universe is God. And that fact is what gives meaning to every other fact in life. And so we raise them so that they will love God. And they will be willing to go wherever God calls them to do and do whatever God calls them uh, to do. And they won't be surprised by rejection because of their stand for Jesus or by suffering and pain because they have seen Jesus' words take up your cross lived out in your life. You tell them the stories of your stand for Jesus. And you, mom and dad, you prepare them. And I want to suggest to you this is a key passage, a key passage for us as parents, especially as our kids get older. Third, you submit to Jesus. You submit to Jesus. Jesus at the end of verse 34 says, follow me, follow me. And we follow him because we understand the magnitude of the me and follow me. We are blown away by who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Now to follow Jesus is to obey Jesus and obedience is born in a willing submission. And this means that you know it's a lie that the physical world and anything in it is able to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. You know that's a lie. And you know that you can never have enough or never do enough or never go enough or never acquire enough or never do this or that enough to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Only Jesus can do that. So to follow Jesus is to submit to Jesus. It's to say yes, sir, to Jesus. Because you know that you and your sin are the biggest danger to yourself. Jesus says, follow me, follow me. And along the way, you are a man, you are a woman, you are, you are a student, married, single, that you have decided that since God is in charge of your life, and sometimes he chooses to take you through good periods, and sometimes he chooses to take you through stressful, dark, bad periods, all in order to purify you. You have decided that since he has declared and spoken about what is morally right and wrong, then you will establish moral boundaries for your mind, for your heart, for your behavior, and you will live inside them. 
follow me. Follow me. It's an obedience thing. And you know that's where the beauty, that's where the contentment, uh, that's where the majesty is. And you believe Jesus has called you to follow him, not because he intends to constrict you, but because he wants to liberate you from yourself, from sin, from living a lesser life. Fourth, you will protect your soul. This is verses 35, 36, and 37. To forfeit one's soul here is to sell out to the world, to sell out to this, to sell out to that. And it's crazy because according to verse 35, look at verse 35, to follow Jesus and to give your soul to Jesus is to gain eternal life. And in the next two verses, using these two rhetorical questions, using the language for those of you in the marketplace of the marketplace, Jesus points out nothing you can buy, nothing you can sell, nothing you can barter or trade is worth more than your soul. Now last week, Rhonda and I were in California. I was speaking at a conference for Children's Hunger Fund. It's this food delivery that we do and we've been doing for a long time here at uh, Wheaton Bible Church and they had a, a big conference and I was one of the speakers the night before we went to the conference because we have a couple kids who are married that live out in Southern California. We had been staying with them and the night before we stayed at a beach house uh, right on, I mean right on the beach that one of our kids was house-sitting for because our son-in-law is full-time with FCA and he's discipling the guy that had rented this house and the guy that rented this house for about six months just happens to be an NFL quarterback. And so he's able to afford this pricey thing on the beach and we got to stay there for a night. And our, as we were talking about his situation in the NFL, our, our kids said, you know, it was a really bad year for him. Didn't get to play much. When he played, it didn't go well. But he told us it was the best year of his life. Because for the first time in his adulthood, he was taken out of the limelight. And when he was in college, he was the man. And in the last year, he's been able to focus on his marriage. And he's been able to focus on his relationship with Christ. And he rediscovered all over again the priority of the life of the soul. Not easy for an NFL quarterback. Not easy for any of us. But look at Jesus' question again in verse 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? My last point, number five. In spite of potential rejection, or even worse, 
You are a person who is not ashamed of Jesus. You're just not ashamed of Jesus. You will speak up about Jesus. You won't press mute when you're around people that don't know Jesus. You stand for Jesus. In verse 38, Jesus says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, a generation that's out of kilter, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. Jesus knows that suffering has a way of making us weak. A little resistance, and what do we do? We retreat. A little rejection, and often we run for cover. Jesus knows our our tendency to capitulate when others resist us, others diss us, others make fun of us, and we want to be accepted, and we want to be viewed as cool. But Jesus is saying, wait, 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 time out. Real Christianity, standing for Christ, means we don't hide Christ. We point people to Christ. And if it costs us a relationship, if it costs us a job, if it costs us a friend, if people malign us behind our backs, then so be it, because we decided a whole lot of time ago that we will not be ashamed. We will not be ashamed. And way too many of us in the body of Christ, and man, I count myself in this, have been ashamed of Jesus. And let me show you how the rest of the New Testament fills some of this out. What Jesus says here, beginning in verse 31 through verse 38, Paul will say succinctly in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at this verse. Anyone who wants to be godly, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be, will be persecuted. Now Paul has in mind uh, first century Rome where to stand for Christ meant you may have been thrown to the lions, but today, 2,000 years later here in the West, uh, the, the pressure is much more subtle. It's different. So today to live for Christ in our context is to face constant pressure to downsize Jesus, to not speak up about Jesus, to be silent about Jesus, to distance ourselves from Jesus. Man, when I came to Christ in college, one of the things they said about me is this guy is a fanatic. And I wasn't. I was just in love with Jesus. And and Jesus here in Mark chapter 8, anticipating our, our weakness, our aversion to suffering, is straightforward and honest. Jesus is just being honest. And Jesus is saying, man, I'd love for you to follow me, but count the cost. The cost is suffering. And don't be surprised by pain. Now look at what Paul adds in Philippians chapter 1. Look at these two verses. Paul says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. Now I want to go back to that word granted. Paul is giving us a huge theological insight here. He is telling us that suffering is a grace. It's a privilege. It's something God weaves into our lives to make us like him. 
It's a necessary part of following uh, Jesus Christ. And one more verse, Romans chapter 8, this wonderful section in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, and all these things we are more than conquerors. We transcend our circumstances, our suffering and our sin, and we become like Christ. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, what that passage is telling us, the way you become a conqueror in life is through adversity. It's part of God's plan. So in the hands of God, as exemplified by the Son of God, suffering is not your enemy, it's your friend. And what do you do? And you deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow Jesus. And you protect your soul. And you are never, ever ashamed of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the grace to hear the words of our Lord here? Would you give us the grace to see beauty here, to see love here? Would you give us the grace to see the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ? In his name we pray. Amen.